Uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you just pause munching for a moment, uh, I'd like to introduce our speaker for today, uh, Peter Hahn, my colleague from the History Department, Professor of History, comes, to, comes with a PhD from Vanderbilt and is a specialist in diplomatic history. Uh, many of you indeed may have attended his diplomatic history seminars in this room at Mershon. Uh, he's the author of three books and many articles, three books all centering on uh, Middle Eastern diplomacy, Middle Eastern problems. The first was the United States, Great Britain and Egypt, 1945-56. Second, Empire and Revolution, the United States and the Third World since 1945. And now, uh, caught in the Middle East, U.S. policy toward the Arab-Israeli conflict, 1945-1961. Which, coincidentally, is the title of his talk today. There are flyers here for afterwards. So I ask you to welcome my colleague and friend Peter Hunt. Thank you, Jeffrey, and thank you to my colleagues and students and friends who ventured over to the Mershon Center this afternoon. I do appreciate your attendance. It's always gratifying to see people take an interest in one's work. I'm here this afternoon to talk about the book, Caught in the Middle East. I'll begin by pointing out that at its most basic level, the book examines U.S. policy toward the Arab-Israeli conflict from 1945 to 1961. That is, it presents evidence to show what policies U.S. government officials formulated toward the major points of contention between Israel and its Arab neighbors. Thus, it analyzes the role of the U.S. in the foundation of Israel, and it clarifies the what and why of U.S. diplomacy during the international wars of 1948-49 and 1956-57. The book also analyzes the evolution of U.S. policy on such issues as territory and borders, the status of Palestinian refugees, the control of Jerusalem, the disposition of the precious waters of the Jordan River Valley, and the trade restrictions and economic boycotts imposed by one side on the other. Some of these disputes, it's worth noting, have remained central points of contention down to the modern day. At a deeper level, the book also situates such policy in the context of U.S. grand strategy during the Cold War, of the long-term development of permanent U.S. interests in the Middle East, and of the domestic political and cultural milieus that affected the formulation of official policy. In other words, I sought to contextualize U.S. policy toward the Arab-Israeli conflict in the broader developments facing U.S. officials around the world, across the region, and at home. The wordplay in the title, Caught in the Middle East, conveys two interwoven foundational themes of the book. First, I argue that the U.S. became caught in the Middle East during the immediate post-World War II period. Prior to 1945, the U.S. counted few formal interests in the region, and it generally deferred to British and French imperialists to maintain order there. World War II awakened U.S. leaders to the importance of projecting power globally and to the importance of the Middle East's oil and military bases for such a projection of power. Middle East oil was deemed essential for the successful reconstruction of Western Europe and Japan, goals that seemed vital to the containment of Soviet communism. Middle East military bases, especially air bases in Egypt, were deemed by Pentagon war planners as absolutely essential 
in the event the Cold War escalated into World War III. According to war contingency plans drafted in the Pentagon in the late 1940s, for example, air bases in Egypt were considered vital to the overall strategy of winning such a war. The strategy entailed yielding Western Europe to the massive and unstoppable Soviet ground army, but then pulverizing the Soviet heartland with atomic blasts from bombers based in Cairo Suez, close enough to reach Soviet targets, while far enough away behind impassable deserts to escape Soviet conquest. As they resisted communism worldwide during the early Cold War, therefore, U.S. leaders assigned increasing strategic and economic importance to the Middle East. They gradually assumed the duty of defending Western interests in the region, even at the risk of war against the Soviet Union or a local state. This transition was manifest in a series of security commitments the U.S. made to the Middle East. In 1950, the United States, together with Britain and France, issued the Tripartite Declaration, which declared an intent to use force <coughs> to stop wars of aggression within the Middle East. In 1952, American officials extended the umbrella of NATO to Greece and Turkey. In 1951-53, they tried to establish a NATO-style military command, alternatively known as the Middle East Command and the Middle East Defense Organization, based in Egypt and including the U.S., Britain, France, and Turkey. In 1955, the Eisenhower administration sponsored the establishment of the Baghdad Pact Security Alliance, linking Britain with Turkey, Pakistan, Iraq, and Iran, and informally committing the United States to fight in defense of the region. In 1957, finally, the U.S. issued the Eisenhower Doctrine, which emphatically declared that the United States would use military force to repel communist aggression in the, into the region. In short, the Cold War compelled the United States to make deep and enduring commitments to the security of the Middle East. Truman and Eisenhower thus laid policy foundations that lasted for decades, such as making security commitments, bolstering conservative regimes, resisting radical ones, containing Soviet communism, and promoting Arab-Israeli peace. By 1961, the U.S. found itself caught in the Middle East, unable to escape the commitments that Truman and Eisenhower had assumed. Second, the title of the book conveys the notion that the U.S. was caught in the middle of the Arab-Israeli conflict. U.S. officials felt compelled by their global containment policy to intercede in the Arab-Israeli conflict, which brought war and turmoil to the Middle East, provided opportunities for Soviet inroads, aggravated anti-Western Arab nationalism, and destabilized the political and economic foundations of the region. Thus, Truman and Eisenhower worked diligently to avert hostilities and to end the wars of 1948-49 and 1956-57 and the intermittent border skirmishes. They formulated diplomatic initiatives to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict in its entirety and to settle specific controversies piecemeal. Eisenhower especially started the enduring U.S. involvement in the Arab-Israeli peace process. Together with Britain, his administration formulated the so-called Alpha Peace Plan in 1954. Alpha was a comprehensive blueprint for peace, a major framework that proposed compromise terms for the major issues dividing the two sides. From the Anglo-American perspective, it offered practical 
balanced, and fair terms for resolving a tough dispute. From the perspective of both the Arab states and Israel, by contrast, Alpha smacked of sellout and appeasement. No local power gave it much support. Israel and Egypt rallied against it, and it died a quick death. But the precedent was nonetheless set for enduring American efforts to act as honest broker in the dispute. Ironically, the U.S. quest for Arab-Israeli peace fell short in 1945 to 61, in part because of limits that U.S. officials imposed on their own peacemaking. To be sure, the antagonism among local powers generated the conflict, and U.S. leaders did help to contain that conflict by achieving ceasefires, ending border skirmishes, and curtailing escalations to general hostilities. However, the United States frequently compromised its own peacemaking objectives when those objectives conflicted with its broader aims in the Cold War. Truman and Eisenhower, for instance, rejected potential solutions to the Arab-Israeli dispute, such as collaboration with the Soviet Union or abandonment of Arab interests on behalf of Israel that might have extended Soviet influence into the region. They also refrained from a strictly pro-Arab settlement of the conflict that would violate their domestic political interests and cultural values. The U.S., in short, favored containment of the Soviet Union at the cost of Arab-Israeli conflict over Arab-Israeli peace at the cost of Soviet political gain. In this sense, the Cold War erected roadblocks over several prospective avenues to Arab-Israeli settlement. By privileging its own Cold War interests over its peacemaking ambitions, the United States even contributed to the Arab-Israeli conflict. Let me cite one example. In 1952, a clique of military officers overthrew King Farouk of Egypt. A power struggle ensued within the group between General Mohammed Naguib, the nominal head of the new government, and Colonel Jamal Abdel Nasser, the brain behind the revolution. The U.S. favored Naguib because he offered stability and he showed a willingness to cooperate with Western anti-Soviet security plans. When Naguib showed signs of negotiating with Israel, for example, by authorizing secret conversations with Israeli envoys in Paris and by visiting a synagogue in Cairo as a gesture to Israel, American officials actually discouraged him. They feared that Naguib would alienate his own people, lose his grip on power, and thereby weaken American Cold War interests. By refraining from taking steps that might have led to peace, in short, U.S. officials left in place a volatile formula for perpetual conflict punctuated by explosive wars. And in the process, they found that their efforts to remain friendly to both sides to the dispute aggravated their relationships with all parties. They were ensnared in the middle of a nasty fight with no apparent escape. In developing these two foundational themes, Caught in the Middle East also spins five specific thematic arguments. First, it comparatively analyzes the policymaking of Presidents Truman and Eisenhower. It finds that Truman, an unsteady president, suddenly thrust into the Oval Office and distracted by momentous events elsewhere, tended to make decisions about the Middle East in reaction to developments there. As a consequence, his policy frequently appeared ambivalent and contradictory. 
In contrast, Eisenhower, who became president when Cold War tensions had stabilized and who brought a wealth of international experience to the Oval Office, devoted personal attention to the Middle East, proactively made policy, and showed more consistency in his initiatives. Despite such differences, however, my research found that the two presidents shared a determination to privilege Cold War security concerns over peacemaking ventures, and that both leaders dealt relatively evenly with Israel and the Arab states. Second, my book examines the domestic, political, and cultural contexts in which U.S. officials made foreign policy. It assesses the prodigious lobbying on behalf of Israel by U.S. citizens, members of Congress, and private interest groups, and it reveals several instances in which Israeli diplomats inspired or even mobilized such support. Such lobbying was consistent with the thinking of advisors in the Truman White House who leaned toward Israel, reflecting such domestic concerns as electoral politics, public opinion, and cultural values. Yet the lobbying often conflicted with what officials in the state and defense departments defined as national interests. As a result, before 1953, these competing bureaucracies often battled for Truman's mind, causing much of the president's ambivalence and inconsistency. The now legendary stories of Truman's flip-flopping from partition to trusteeship and back again to partition in early 1948 remain the most famous, but by no means the only, example. While the battles were muted after 1953, Eisenhower could not fully escape the restraints of the domestic political context. Even he refrained from imposing sanctions on Israel to force its departure from the Sinai and Gaza in early 1957 because of strong opposition on Capitol Hill and in public opinion. Third, my book examines the nature of the U.S.-Israeli relationship. Many scholars have described this relationship as, quote, special, unquote, because of instances of U.S. support for Israel and because of the deep sympathy for Israel in U.S. public opinion. My research found evidence to sustain this view to a point, but it also found evidence that disagreements on policy issues, especially security-related questions involving the Arab states and American peacemaking gambits, frequently generated conflict and acrimony in the official relationship. In this sense, my book offers a corrective to the special relationship thesis. In probing the U.S.-Israeli relationship, I found two interesting dynamics at play. On the one hand, U.S. officials confronted what I call a firmness dilemma, in which they calculated that treating the new state of Israel with firmness would force it to heed to their demands when in reality, such firmness usually provoked defiance. For example, the State Department demanded that Israel accept the territorial provisions of the Bernadotte Plan in 1948 on the assumption that the United Nations retained some authority in Israel as it purportedly had exercised under the mandate. But U.S. officials soon learned that Israel vigorously defended its control of territories that it deemed vital and it resented the presumption that it must bend to U.N. dictates. Only gradually would U.S. officials escape the firmness dilemma by treating Israel as a sovereign state rather than some semi-state under U.N. auspices. For their part, 
Israeli leaders faced what I call an influence dilemma within the United States. Well aware of the anti-Zionism in the state and defense departments, they routinely appealed to Truman through a circle of advisors and sympathetic private citizens who had access to the Oval Office. Such advocates proved instrumental in convincing Truman to support partition, to oppose trusteeship, to recognize Israel, to block the State Department from compelling Israel to concede territory, and to provide substantial economic and military aid to Israel. Israeli officials also formulated subtle Hasbara, or information initiatives, to shape U.S. public opinion as yet another check on the power of the State Department. Yet Israeli officials realized that their back-channel contacts with the White House, as effective and necessary as they seem, deeply angered the State and Defense Departments and thereby aggravated the original predicament facing Israel. A fourth theme of my study is the evolution of U.S. relations with the Arab states that most directly challenged Israel, namely Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, and Saudi Arabia. The conflict with Israel fueled the growth of Arab nationalism, spawned revolutionary unrest in several Arab states, radicalized significant Arab constituencies, threatened Western economic interests, and promoted neutralism in the Cold War. The Arab states also engaged in what Malcolm Kerr once called a dreary and inconclusive Cold War, along shifting coalitions that rose and fell on myriad issues. And the Arab world experienced a, city, a series of radical revolutions with the overthrow of pro-Western regimes in Syria in 1949, in Egypt in 1952, and in Iraq in 1958, together with the near collapse of Lebanon in 1958, and the repeated threats to the throne of Jordan. Faced with such challenges, the U.S. adopted a policy of bolstering conservative Arab regimes and stemming the growth of Arab nationalism through a variety of means, including positive incentives, firmness, and appeasement. While U.S. officials could take some comfort in the fact that no Arab state embraced communism in this period, U.S. relations with the radical states were strained, and the image across the Arab world was tattered by American support of Israel. Finally, my book also probes the influence of the Anglo-American relationship on U.S. policy in the Middle East. It finds that the two Western powers often had sharp differences of judgment on aspects of Middle East diplomacy, most notably during the Suez War of 1956, and the book traces the sharp decline of the British Empire and the rise of the United States as a global power in the 1945-61 period. Despite the quarrels and power imbalance, however, my research found substantial evidence that the two states recognized the essentiality of maintaining a close alliance for security purposes and that they constantly worked to coordinate their policies in the region. Despite Suez, the coordination of the Anglo-American interventions in Lebanon and Jordan in 1958 confirmed the intimacy of the alliance even as these events marked the twilight of Britain's pretense to power in the Middle East and the dawn of American hegemony in the region. Allow me a few minutes also to provide an overview of the book's organization and contents. Its 20 chapters are divided into four parts corresponding to the two Truman and two Eisenhower 
presidential terms. Each part begins by establishing the strategic and the domestic political context in which policy unfolded during the requisite presidential term. It then examines U.S. policy toward the Arab-Israeli conflict in general and toward each specific point of dispute. The exploration of general policy includes clarification of U.S. principles toward the conflict, the reasons behind such principles, and U.S. efforts to end or avert wars and to promote a comprehensive peace settlement. The examination of specific disputes explores U.S. efforts to resolve such major points of contention as borders, refugees, Jerusalem, fresh water, and economic boycott. I also probe relatively minor issues, such as the welfare of Jews residing in Arab states, German reparations to Israel, and Jewish immigration to Israel. Let me clarify that I see the book as an example of traditional diplomatic history. Since roughly the end of the Cold War, as many of you know, the field of diplomatic history has witnessed a proliferation of studies that examine the American experience on the world stage through the lenses of race, gender, public perception, and other aspects of culture. To its credit, the so-called new diplomatic history has opened the field to new modes of inquiry, made it more accessible to scholars with other specialties, and raised provocative new questions about the past. In the eyes of its critics, by contrast, these studies have fallen short of answering the crucial questions of causation, why U.S. leaders made certain policy decisions, for example, and they have misdirected attention away from those individuals, usually elite white men, who commanded tremendous military, political, and economic power, and who therefore remain important subjects for study. As I worked on this book through the period of change in the field, I decided, perhaps more subconsciously than consciously, to adhere fairly closely to the traditional model of methodology. I had been trained to do that kind of history. It seemed to make sense as a means of explaining the what, the how, and the why of the past, and it seemed to appeal to a wide audience of consumers in academia and beyond. I did, however, use the new diplomatic historians as a benchmark for testing my own ideas and in some cases I came to appreciate their new perspectives. For example, Doug Little and others make a compelling case, one that seemed consistent with the evidence I found in the archives, that popular cultural perceptions about Arabs as inferior and uncivilized persons of color affected the formulation of American policy. By contrast, I found less merit in Michelle Mart's argument that American leaders revealed a preference for Israel by casting its people in masculine terms and the Arab people in feminine terms. I found, quite by contrast, that U.S. diplomats also used feminine terms to describe Israeli leaders, including Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion. Mart might be correct that U.S. officials use feminine terms to derogate foreign leaders, but she does not convincingly prove, in my judgment, that such nomenclature was a cause rather than a reflection of U.S. policy, and her simple dichotomy between Arabs and Israelis breaks down under scrutiny. While researching this book, I aspired to honor the noble ideal among diplomatic historians of consulting records in multiple archives and in multiple countries. Within the United States, I looked at the papers of Truman and Eisenhower, as well as the records of the State Department, the Pentagon, 
the National Security Council, the CIA, and various individual diplomats. Consulting such a wide range of sources proved invaluable by revealing how key officials balanced domestic concerns against overseas goals, diplomatic objectives against security imperatives, and bureaucratic ambitions against the national interest. I also exhausted the archives of Britain and, and Israel in the process learning Hebrew from scratch. The British and Israeli records revealed the foreign wellsprings of American policy, the overseas impact of that policy, and other features of U.S. policy that remain shrouded in the archives of the United States. Finally, a word about my personal perspective. Ideally, I aim to maintain a strict impartiality toward the Arab-Israeli conflict and toward American policy, even while cognizant that no historian can completely escape the magnetic pole of his or her personal, political, and cultural values and biases. On occasion, I found it difficult to write about the subject because it remains so controversial, continuing to generate passionate debate among citizens and scholars who identify with one side or the other in the current dispute. In writing the book, I aimed for scholarly objectivity, seeking to empathize with all parties to the conflict, but to sympathize with none. And of course, I have to leave it to you and to other readers to tell me whether I have succeeded in this quest. In 1945 to 61, in summary, Truman and Eisenhower set the foundations of U.S. policy toward the Arab-Israeli conflict in subsequent decades. They gradually assumed the responsibility to protect Western interests in the Middle East, and their successors did not relinquish those responsibilities during the remainder of the Cold War. Nor did later presidents relent in the quest to achieve stability within the Middle East by preserving governments friendly to the West and favoring, in principle, resolution of the Arab-Israeli conflict. Security and stability remained the watchwords of U.S. policy in the Middle East for the duration of the Cold War. Truman and Eisenhower amassed a mixed record of achieving regional security and stability. To an extent, they achieved their containment objectives in the Middle East. No government became communist or openly pro-Soviet, and several pro-Western regimes remained U.S. strategic partners. Yet the Soviet Union made inroads into the region by forming political and arms supply relationships with Cairo and Damascus, and the prospect loomed that the Soviets might exploit anti-Israel passions to turn the entire Arab world against the West. The region would remain vulnerable to destabilizing U.S.-Soviet rivalry for decades. The quest by Truman and Eisenhower to manage rather than resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict entailed certain risks and ultimately it faltered. In the short term, their efforts led to a deepening U.S. intervention in the Middle East, including the commitment of military forces to the area and the prospect of hostilities against Soviet or Soviet-backed forces. Nonetheless, by the late 1950s, the strategy proved untenable as certain Arab powers drifted into anti-Western dispositions that left them vulnerable to Soviet intrigue. U.S. leaders found themselves caught in the Middle East, unable to relinquish the responsibilities they had accepted, even as those responsibilities became increasingly difficult to fulfill. And they were caught in the middle of the Arab-Israeli conflict, unable to resolve a dispute that would generate instability for years to come. 
Thank you, and I will welcome your questions. Yes. The question is whether the Israeli policy of separation manifest in the wall is a new policy or a continuation of something old. Well, it's a little bit of both, I think, is a safe answer. Um, the physical structure of the wall and the impermeable and permanent status that a concrete structure connotes are new, and they seem to show an absolute rock-solid firmness in the Israeli mind that the border, as it would be established by the wall, would be permanent and unchangeable. Um, what is not new is that that type of approach or that type of attitude or mindset is not unusual, nor is it unprecedented in the long history of the Israeli approach to the situation. In other words, Israel has always believed in the need to have a secure border that could protect its people against terrorist attacks or insurgency attacks from neighboring peoples. In the past, they tried to establish that border through a variety of uh, armed encampments, occasionally barbed wire and chain link fences, patrols, political agreements, and the like. Um, the concrete wall of the modern day is the latest manifestation of that type of attitude. So it does have precedent, but I think it is new in the extent of the permanence and the, literally the concreteness of, of the mindset behind it. Yes, there were. The um, Truman administration tended to be more reactive and the Eisenhower administration more proactive. The Truman administration tended to lean toward Israel. The Eisenhower administration either leaned toward the Arab states or toward neutrality. It's hard to define exactly how far it went on that spectrum, but it definitely leaned the opposite way than the Truman administration leaned. Uh, but I see those variations as really subtle and inconsequential when compared to the fundamental uh, congruity between the two administrations on the essential questions of containment of the Soviet Union, containment of Arab-Israeli conflict, the balance between strategic and domestic political ambitions, and so forth. I also think that over time, over the time period of each administration, the direction of each administration moved toward a common center. In other words, Truman began ardently pro-Israel and moved toward a more neutral orientation during his second term. Eisenhower began much more neutral or pro-Arab, but then moved toward a more neutral or pro-Israeli disposition during his second term. So if you compare the Truman of 1949 to 53 with the Eisenhower of 57 to 61, 
there I think the overlap and congruity is very striking. Uh, they really seem much, much more similar than different on, on that perspective. Carol? The perceptions changed quite a bit. Uh, in the early years, there was a deep-seated fear of Soviet expansionism that was not based on hard evidence about actual Soviet inroads into the Middle East. Rather, it was based on perceptions of what the Soviets might try on the basis of what they had done in Eastern Europe at the close of World War II. And it was based on fears conjured up by Soviet ideology and rhetoric about the glories of communism and the impending um, proletariat revolution, the Bolshevizing of the world, and that type of thing. Now, there was no hard evidence of Soviet inroads in the Middle East in the late 40s and early 1950s during Stalin's last years in office, and yet U.S. officials constantly raised the specter of potential Soviet intervention or a potential Soviet political move into the Middle East. In some cases, they saw it coming in the form of political influence in the Arab states, in some cases, they saw it coming in the form of a covert operation to infiltrate communist agents in Jewish emigres moving from Eastern Europe, from Poland and Russia, into the new state of Israel. And they were very concerned by it. But after a few months of, or years of panicky type of fear, they did do more hard-headed assessments of exactly how threatening the Soviet Union was. And they realized that the Soviets were not a direct threat to any Western interests in the Middle East. That did begin to change with the outbreak of the Korean War. Um, again, because of the perception, now widely viewed by most scholars as misperception, that the Soviet Union instigated the attack by North Korea on South Korea on June 25, 1950. The Truman administration reached the most extreme view that the Soviet Union was likely or could be expected to try other types of uh, such aggressive activity elsewhere along its perimeter, and perhaps most notably in the Middle East. Um, in assessing the news from Korea, in a famous meeting with some of his advisors, Truman actually spun the globe from Southeast Asia to Southwest Asia to the Middle East and pointed to Iran and said, this is where they might try next, or maybe some point south of Iran, that we should expect more Korea-style attacks. And that was part of the thinking behind America's adoption of NSC-68 and the globalization of the Cold War, the militarization of the Cold War in the early 1950s. During the Khrushchev era and Eisenhower era, as Khrushchev rose to power and consolidated power, then suddenly the Soviet threat seemed at the same time less pernicious, but also more realistic. In other words, Khrushchev seemed to pose the threat of trying to capture Middle East states or influence Middle East states by contesting Western dominance in the Middle East. Um, Eisenhower officials looked at Khrushchev and did not see a dire threat to the survival of America in the way they often portrayed Stalin as someone who could suddenly overwhelm the Western system. So in that sense, they breathed more easily. But on the other hand, they saw actual evidence of Soviet inroads into the Middle East. And indeed, Khrushchev announced that he was going to try to move into the region. And he did, through a series of economic aid deals and military aid packages, begin to build bridges with Cairo and Damascus and other political movements in the sphere. So American officials actually saw more evidence of Soviet inroads, but yet they 
um, feared them less. They saw them as a more manageable problem than they might have seen than Truman officials saw under, uh, under Stalin. The impact of um, Sputnik in the late 50s, I think, was part of the assessment of Khrushchev. Um, on, the, on the global level, of course, Sputnik created something of a panic or a wave of fear through the Western world. The Soviets were suddenly ahead technologically. I don't think that applied so much to the Middle East because the Middle East was seen as a battleground that would be decided by more low-tech means. Uh, possession of a new strategic weapon, of a new satellite capability, would not really change the political dynamics within the region where power was decided by insurgency and uh, low-intensity conflict and things like that. Question here? Uh, this is also a question about the reception. I'm wondering how the American uh, foreign policy decision-makers perceive the, the role of the United Nations uh, in this period, let's say, from the creation of the State of Israel until the Suez crisis. Do you see more continuity or do you see some change? And if so, how was, was this manifested? In the late 1940s, the U.S. put a lot of hope that the United Nations could achieve an international settlement in the Middle East that would avert war and result in some type of political stability that would be consistent with American ambitions of containing the Soviet Union. They quickly learned through the experiences of the partition vote and the establishment of Israel of the outbreak of war and the inability of the UN to end that war and the inability of the UN to make a permanent peace treaty, they, they realized that the UN was really something of a paper shell. That was the perception they took by the early 50s. And they basically sidelined the UN as a body of change, as an entity that could exert real influence or actually make a difference in the Middle East, and concluded from that assessment that the United States itself would have to shoulder the burden and become more involved. From the 1950s on, the early 1950s on, the approach largely remained the same in that the U.S. really took primary leadership. On occasion, it would find it tactically useful to draw the UN into the situation, to bring UN officials into play, to send someone on a peace mission. But they realized that the UN had problems internally, that it really lacked the credibility and prestige and power needed to affect real change. And so it could be used as a tool, but not really as a, as a central entity of, of, of a policymaking apparatus. Uh, over this period, there was a uh, labor and conservative government in Britain. Uh, labor for parts of 51 and 51 through 61. How did they differ in regard to the Arab Israeli conflict? And were there significant differences in the relations they had with the United States over, over, over the conflict? In other words, were the kind of one might expect there were indeed. The labor government of Atlee from 45 to 51 was much more prone to decolonization. It realized that uh, Britain could not sustain its pre-war empire in the post-war era because of the changes wrought by the war and because, the on because of the onset of the worldwide decolonization move. Um, so Atlee sort of realized the hard reality of modern life and made accommodations to decolonize around the world. He gave up India, he gave up Pakistan, he w was willing to make concessions to Egypt, and so forth. Uh, William Roger Lewis, of course, suggests in his provocative research that Attlee was not really giving up on British empire, he was simply trying to retool the empire so that it could survive in an era of decolonization. And he tried to replace the formal British empire with an informal British empire. 
that indeed is a provocative interpretation that is worth keeping in mind. Uh, but in any case, Attlee definitely was changing the name of the game, the essence of the game, in recognition of the power shifts that had occurred under the shadow of World War II. The conservative administration, the conservative government that followed him, that of, of uh, Churchill and Eden, was much more wedded to the older traditional notions of British greatness and did try to reestablish or reassert traditional colonial forms of control through much of the Middle East, uh, only to have that experiment or that reassertion of power blow up in the Suez Crisis of 1956, at which point in time the latter-day conservatives, Harold Macmillan in particular, recognized that indeed all was lost, that they would have to change with the new times. And uh, Macmillan basically gave a speech entitled The Winds of Change, where he recognized that change was sweeping through the world and that Britain had to retool and rethink its colonial policies from the ground floor up. The second part of your question was how U.S. officials responded to such change. The Truman administration welcomed the labor government's tendency toward decolonization, in part because it corresponded with American ideology of opposing imperialism and welcoming self-determination among peoples throughout the third world, in part because British colonialism was seen as generating the most radical form of Arab nationalism, which seemed to be vulnerable to exploitation by the Soviet Union. Um, and, and so Truman occasionally encouraged the British to throw in the towel in India and Pakistan in other places, uh, Jordan, um, even to a certain degree Iraq prior to 1951, certainly in Iran as well with the uh, showdown between the British government and the government of Iran over the oil corporation, the British-owned oil corporation that dominated that country. Eisenhower took a more balanced view, perhaps. He had a lot of old personal friendships with major British leaders. He had partnered with them very carefully, closely during World War II. He found himself in office with Churchill across the sea, and in fact, they re rejuvenated their wartime alliance to a certain degree. And Eisenhower saw Britain more as a force of uh, progress rather than a force of regress for a brief period of time. He worked with Britain carefully in the Alpha Peace Plan of 1954-55, trying to partner with the British very closely in the Baghdad Pact and in other security mechanisms. But yet, at Suez, even Eisenhower realized that British imperialism was moribund and untenable. And after the crisis, he did move to replace the British imperial structure with an international security system that was based on, on U.S. power. Yes. Uh, I'm, my question pertains to the role of John Foster Dulles and whether he may have picked your interest in the Middle East and his role to the extent that your review of original sources and delineate uh, his impact on the Middle East Dulles took a, um, an enormous personal interest in the Middle East. Of course, he had an interest in a lot of areas, and it's easy for someone with my perspective to overstate his, the significance that he attached to the Middle East in particular. Uh, however, that said, or that potential uh, weakness in my argument recognized, I would contend that Dulles was the primary shaper of American policy in the region at the working level. He was the man who made the mission overseas, who engaged in the negotiations, who worked out the terms of settlement, who supervised the staff work, not only in the State Department, but through other branches of government as well. 
Now, having said that, I also believe the evidence shows that Eisenhower remained the boss, if you will. Um, many of you might know or remember that during the 1950s, there was a common conception that Eisenhower spent much of his presidency playing golf and Dulles really ran the world. That view lasted through the 1960s and into the 1970s is the consensus interpretation of the decade. But a lot of revisionist literature has showed very clearly that it, Eisenhower really was in charge, that he did participate in key meetings, he did review and approve documents, he did uh, closely supervise the work that Dulles was doing. And the evidence that I saw sustained that revisionist view, that Eisenhower was the piston who drove policy, the, the energy source, the dynamo, if you will, but Eisenhower was in charge. Eisenhower did make the crucial decisions, and Dulles learned to be loyal to Eisenhower and to express that loyalty by following his line. I tested that thesis on a couple of cases by looking for points on which Dulles and Eisenhower differed in their original assessments of policy. The most notable example I can think of is at the, uh, the first break of the Suez Crisis in 1956, uh, before Eisenhower was able to return to Washington and make a policy decision, Dulles engaged in some discussions at the Pentagon and came down with a very hawkish position of actually um, allowing the Israeli invasion of Egypt to succeed and not doing anything to stop it. Eisenhower arrived back in town a couple of hours later, looked at the evidence and said, absolutely not, we have to bring this attack to an end right away, and of course Dulles immediately gave in. In fact, what's really interesting in the archival record is at 2 p.m. you find Dulles arguing, you know, let's let Israel do it. And at 6 p.m. he's telling the president, well, some people suggested <laughs> Israel do it. But, of course, I agree with you, um, showing complete deference to the commander-in-chief. And so that kind of test case shows, I think, who really was the boss and, and who Dulles knew even was the boss. Yes? When American policymakers in the 50s say imagine an eventual peaceful Middle East, with whom did they imagine we would be dealing? Uh, I was struck as you were talking about a sense I've often had that when you overhear people on both sides of the beam line speaking about each other, the Israelis looking east talk about Abarim and the Arabs on the, the Palestinians on the east looking west talk about the Jews. Was there any sense from what you read that anybody was imagining uh, uh, an Israeli state that was heavily Arab at a time when most of its immigrants were Arabic-speaking Jews? Was there any clear sense of what a Palestinian state would be like in terms of its composition? Or was this really Arab-Israeli? Through the Truman and Eisenhower period, the perspective that American officials took uh, was a peaceful settlement that would involve the state of Israel, which was generally seen as a Jewish state, not because anyone believed the mistaken notion that it was 100% Jewish. There was the recognition of the Arab minority uh, within Israel. On the other side of the settlement would be the principal Arab powers that bordered on Israel and that had fought Israel in the 1948-49 war. The bordering states of Egypt, Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon, plus Iraq, which had sent forces from afar. Uh, there was no talk of a Palestinian state. In fact, the territories that are today assigned or designated for a future Palestinian state had been annexed or militarily occupied by the Jordanians and the Egyptians. Um, Jordan officially annexed the West Bank in 1950, and Egypt was in military occupation of the Sinai and Gaza 
uh, and plus a few little pockets of land along the border in the Sinai. And there was no discussion at all of a Palestinian state. The assumption was that the Palestinians would gain their political expression within the states of Jordan and Egypt and the other countries in which they live. Now, one of the major points of contention was the extent to which the, the Palestinian refugees from Israel would enjoy the right of return. Um, Palestinian spokesmen demanded the right, at least in, that the right at least be recognized in principle, or in the most extreme case, that it actually be activated and that you know hundreds of thousands of Palestinian Arabs would be allowed to return to territory under the control, under the sovereignty of Israel and resume their lifestyle reassume control of their property and farms and so forth. The Israelis categorically refused to allow the mass return of, of Arab people because they saw such uh, a human flow as a security threat. It would be a fifth column of saboteurs and traitors who would undermine the state from within. Occasionally, the Israelis offered to allow a token repatriation. 10,000 or 50,000 people could be reunited with families as long as they were elderly or children without military records and things like that. Um, but those discussions tended to end in deadlock. In other words, the Israelis would not give nearly enough, the Palestinians would not relent in their demands nearly enough, and the question of repatriation became the major, one of the major sticking points of the dispute during the Truman and Eisenhower period, and one that really scotched a lot of the peace plans that um, especially the Eisenhower administration put on the table. The Alpha Plan that Eisenhower devised tried to address the refugee problem, like all other problems, with a compromise. And it's a nice example of the Western way of thinking and how the Western way of thinking often doesn't coincide with the Eastern way of thinking, for lack of a better term. Eisenhower and his officials sat down and said, here's the Israeli position, here's the Arab position, let's find the exact middle line and see if we can work out a compromise there. And of course, neither side was willing to go halfway. Neither side was really even willing to go 10%. So they weren't, uh, they were, they had such a gap between them, they simply couldn't bridge that chasm. And so the conflict persisted. Yes. Yes, to a degree, yes. Okay, and, and if, okay so then the question is, uh, just if you could say a word to you about how you approached uh, the counterfactuals involved with that kind of argument. Did you sort of work at a sort of very specific level and say, okay, what were other policies that were on the table that weren't enacted and try to imagine what would happen if they did? Or do you get to a more broad level and say, well, this American general that has had uh, a <coughs> be much more involved other countries that reacted in this way, or did they committed even less than they did, how other countries reacted? Well, it's an excellent question, because one always wonders if this were a missed opportunity, what were the options, what might have succeeded. Um, the ultimate conclusion that I reach is a very pessimistic conclusion, and that is that there perhaps was no settlement. Um, and often, in fact, I think we find in studying diplomatic history, sometimes, as all of you know, the world's a messy place where sometimes you can't get what you want and you have to work out the best terms 
which are often, you know, damaging terms um, simply because of the lack of alternatives. <coughs> to answer your question specifically, I think the U.S. had four broad options in approaching the type of issue you mentioned. One option would have been to have completely sided with Israel in all of its demands, in all of the issues, and thus completely broken with all the Arab states and forced a settlement on the region in which Israel was completely bolstered and emboldened and the Arab and Palestinian voices were completely suppressed. That, of course, was problematic because it would generate undying Arab antagonism. It would probably force the Arab states into the arms of the Soviet Union. Option number two was exactly the opposite, to force a settlement of the controversy that took the Arab side entirely and completely disregarded all of the security and political interests of the Israeli state. Um, in terms of power politics, I actually think that that option was more sustainable than the first option, simply because the Israeli people had few allies in the world. They were probably less likely to turn to the Soviet Union than the Arabs would have been. However, the option was nonetheless negated by the domestic political and cultural context in which U.S. officials had to operate, meaning the voters would have just punished whoever dared suggest such a settlement of the conflict, for right or wrong. I think that's just a fact of life. A third option would have been to put together some kind of truly international settlement through which the U.S. would have worked in close cooperation with the Soviet Union and other powers around the world to effect a truly international, internationally backed and sanctioned compromise of some sort, and maybe the international community could have put uh, sufficient power on both parties to the dispute to force them to some kind of compromise. But, of course, that approach was entirely inconsistent with everything America was doing on the global stage in terms of containing the Soviets and keeping them in their shell and not letting them out, not letting them gain any kind of influence. And so it was simply impractical. I'm not necessarily saying that, what the, that the U.S. approach to the Soviet Union was right or wrong. I'm just saying it was the approach they took, and that approach uh, prohibited um, the international perspective on the Arab-Israeli conflict. Approach number four and the one that I think the U.S. ultimately adopted was just sort of this policy of muddling through. We can't solve this conflict even though we've had a hand in creating it. We, we make efforts to solve it but they don't work and yet uh, we can accept that this conflict is tolerable. We don't like it but it's the best option that's the least of the evils that faces us. We really don't have any other options so we're simply going to try to manage the conflict and keep it from exploding into violence simply because any prospective solution we can think of uh, runs into obstacles and we value other interests more than we value the interests of Arab-Israeli peace, per se, as a general principle. In the back. Uh, I wonder if you could uh, follow through on the um, playing of the communist card uh, with respect to the Middle East. Um, my thought is that it was played for Uh, 
Thank you. That's an excellent question. In the late 40s and early 50s, um, American officials did recognize that Islam was incompatible with Soviet-style communism. And they realized that largely because many Arab state leaders told them, um, you, you, you don't know us very well, but when you get to know us, you'll find out that our faith will simply not allow us to accept Soviet-style government, so don't worry. I think the most colorful line in that sense was when the king of Saudi Arabia mentioned to an Air Force, a U.S. Air Force officer who was visiting the kingdom, uh, you go find me a communist and I'll bring you his head on a platter. Um, and that, in fact, sort of conveyed the essence of the staunch anti-communism of the Arab monarchists and those who lean toward an Islamic form of government. Now, the difficulty came when the Arab world began to radicalize, when people like uh, Shackley in Syria, Nasser in Egypt took over, because they were secular, and they didn't play the Islam card within their power structures the way that their predecessors had. And that caused worry to the American government because they feared that that break that Islam put on the spread of communism was suddenly removed and that communism might become um, more a factor. There's also a sense in American thinking, perhaps born of hubris or arrogance, uh, that third world leaders all over the globe, not just in the Middle East but everywhere, didn't truly appreciate how pernicious communism was and how aggressive and dangerous Soviet or Chinese communism were in particular. Uh, all over the third world, nationalist leaders were challenging the remnants of European and American imperialism, and American officials would criticize them for opening their countries to communism, and they would respond that they were not communists, they didn't have any communists, and the American mentality was but you don't know what you're dealing with. Uh, you're weak, you're nationalistic, the Soviets are going to sneak in your back door and take over your country and put knives in your backs before you realize what hit you. And so the American mindset was such that they feared that even in countries that were avowedly non-communist, and even countries that said, we're Islamic, we can't be communist, there was a fear that the Soviets could yet get control of them and could yet move in and take them over. Was that a fear driven by domestic politics? I think it was consistent with the long tradition of anti-communism within the United States, and thus it was good for uh, electoral politics at home, electoral political interests at home. I'm not sure that was the driving force, though. I think it helped, but I think there was sufficient fear in the international realm to drive that kind of American approach. Was there any evidence to sustain the view? Well, maybe a little bit of evidence with regard to the way the Soviets had treated Eastern Europe in the late 1940s. Poland, of course, had been a staunchly anti-communist, anti-Soviet power before World War II, and it was simply taken over by the Soviets. And then after Korea and the shadow of that misperception that Stalin was behind that attack, there was fear that there might be more such Soviet-style um, acts of aggression in the future. Don? It was close to the second of the options you, pre you presented. The, uh, the UAR, of course, was the merger between 
Egypt and Syria that began in 1958 and lasted until 1961. It also included Yemen, although Yemen was a distant third partner in the, in the arrangement. Um, and it was sprung suddenly on the Western world. It was announced rather unexpectedly. No one in the West had anticipated that this development was in the works. And initially, the Americans and British were very fearful that the UAR would become a bastion of radicalism or a bastion of Soviet strength. Such fears were based on evidence that the Soviets had made inroads into Cairo and especially into Damascus, where there was great fear that communists might take over suddenly um, uh, and unexpectedly in the near future. Now, quite by contrast, within a few days of the announcement of the UAR, the State Department came up with a much different view, and, and that view was actually a huge sigh of relief because they realized, or they calculated at least, that under Nasser's control, Syria would definitely not go communist. Prior to Nasser's merger, uh, there was fear that Syria could go communist any day. But once Nasser was in control, the State Department officials looked at each other and said, Nasser will never allow the communists to take over Damascus. In fact, Nasser was the senior partner of the UAR. Um, everyone saw that at the time, including the Syrians, within a matter of weeks, much to their regret. Um, and that was actually then, so the UAR very quickly became seen as a, um, a, as a factor of stability that could stop um, the potential for communism to move into an area where that seemed quite vulnerable to it. Alan? Well, the, um, to my knowledge, measurable military aid uh, didn't begin to Egypt or Syria until a later period of time, so the Khrushchev era. Certainly by 54, 55, the Soviets um, scored their biggest breakthrough with the so-called Czech arms deal, which is really a Soviet arms deal funneled through Czechoslovakia with Egypt in September 1955. Um, soon thereafter, Chinese military aid arrives, communist Chinese in Cairo as well, and then the Soviets give an enormous economic aid package to build the Aswan Dam, um, which sort of compelled Nasser to reject an Anglo-American offer to do the same. And before long, Soviet aid is filtering into Damascus as well. Um, that's part of Khrushchev's strategy, by the way, as I said earlier, to bring the international conflict, to bring the international rivalry into the third world in a very assertive, if not aggressive, sort of way. American officials were concerned because they saw that as sort of the vanguard of communist expansionism. The notion in American thinking was that these powers accept the aid, convinced that they can take it and remain neutral, can ma maintain their independence, but in the end they won't be able to. The Soviets will find some way to manipulate the aid, to force them to become dependent on Moscow, and that's why it needs to be contested. Uh, now the difficulty from the point of view, especially of the Eisenhower administration, is how do you contest it? A good case study is when the Soviets presented their aid offer to Egypt to build the Aswan Dam. Initially, Dulles and Eisenhower thought about trying to outbid the Soviets, but they realized that that was, uh, you know, a difficult game to play because it could become one-upsmanship, could end up costing a lot of money. Um, it would allow Nasser to exploit the Cold War rivalry to do what Nasser used to call work on both sides of the street. I mean, he would, you know, like a good uh, bargainer in, a, in, an, in an Arab bazaar, he would make a good deal at our expense. Eisenhower and Dulles reached an interesting conclusion with regard to Oswan. Let's just pull our game out and let them take Soviet aid, and they will regret it within a few years because they'll realize that Soviet money isn't worth much in the international world. 
that Soviet concrete doesn't last, that Soviet technicians are half as smart as our technicians, and let's make them pay for their mistake. Let's call their bluff, if you will. Let them take Soviet aid, and they will be victims in the end as a result. Um, that was a bit of a gamble because it was weighed against the risk that the Soviets would use the Oswan package as an inroad to take over the country. In retrospect, it appears that the gamble paid off. Um, indeed, the Soviets wrote the big check, hundreds of millions of dollars for Oswan. In fact, the Oswan Dam, um, scientists tell me, is a technological failure. It's literally falling apart because the concrete is so, such poor quality, big chunks of it are collapsing all the time. And in the end, Egypt was able to resist the Soviet political baggage of um, subservience, uh, the subservience to Moscow. You don't count Libya? I do not, no. I do not. It's a whole different study. It's an argument that that might be an omission of some Even through the Eisenhower period? Well, that's true. That's true. Right. Right. And once he falls in 1969, of course, to uh, Gaddafi's regime, there's, there are interesting parallels at that point in time between Libya and Egypt in the previous decade. But through the 50s, Libya is really not a major factor in American thinking about the region beyond the military bases in, in uh, Edwilas. Uh, but that, of course, is part of a whole network of bases all through the Mediterranean and the eastern Atlantic part of America's security shield that was built in, in across the Eastern Hemisphere. One puzzle. The, 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 uh, the way you simplify it, the, um, the Americans are scared to death of communist penetration in the Middle East. And they're absolutely convinced that uh, local indigenous inhabitants are too unsophisticated and gullible to actually protect themselves against the threat. It is so threatening the U.S. wanting to spend billions of dollars to outbid so how threatening is the threat if you, you claim that Eisenhower and Bell are going to spend a lot, a lot of money? Well, if American security is at risk, why would they spend tens of billions of dollars? So it's going to be that either they don't actually believe the threat is that dire, right? And they're just they, they're hardball in it, and it's just back up, they're in it for the American public or to justify military bullets for other reasons. So there's some, some trouble there. And simultaneously, uh, the argument is, oh yeah, let the Soviets give this aid because they're so incompetent and primitive that the uh, Egyptians will learn that you know, alliance with the Soviets isn't worth anything. Well, then how are they so insidious and so capable of penetrating the government and so capable of pervading communism when in fact they're incompetent and primitive? But it seems to be a contradiction so glaring mm -hmm. that begs the most cynical interpretation of the text that you're reading, namely that Americans know that there isn't that dire threat, that they actually have to convey the threat for exogenous reasons. Well, it's a good point, and in fact, um, American policy often is full of contradictions. Um, the point about Oswan um, I brought up as a as a single example of American pragmatism or of American willingness to take a chance. Maybe I overstated the significance of it. I think it is an exception to the general rule of a more prudent, cautious policy that did continue to emphasize the inherent dangers of, of Soviet expansionism, um, either of a political variety or an economic variety or even the outside chance of a, of a full-scale military attack. What caused this momentary blip? It might have been a bit of pragmatism in Eisenhower and Dulles' approach. It might have been a calculation that they had to weigh their overseas ambitions against 
budget challenges and political interests at home. In fact, um, by the time that the decision was made that I described, Eisenhower and Dulles had realized that justifying an American aid package to Israel would be, would be profoundly difficult in the domestic political arena because the pro-Israel lobby was up in revolt against it, because the southern lobby was up in revolt against it. The fear was that the dam was going to increase Egyptian cotton production that was going to damage American southern farms. So all this, the, the representatives and, and senators from southern states had told Eisenhower and Dulles they better not forward this aid package. Congress had even gotten to the point of threatening to suspend the president's prerogatives in issuing foreign aid by passing a special law that would say, you know, the, the president's slush fund here that he can spend at his own discretion is now suspended. And so Eisenhower had to figure maybe I should give up on Oswan to settle this domestic um, political problem as well. There's also the calculation Eisenhower was a Republican of the old order, meaning he believed in balanced budgets. He rarely achieved one, but that was his ideal. He was constantly looking for ways to economize. And he would look at some things and say, this is just too costly. We have to maintain a balanced budget or a more balanced budget. In fact, at the very heart of Eisenhower's strategic understanding of the world was a compromise between seeing the Soviets as a threat and maintaining a balanced budget. That's why he went with massive retaliation instead of the conventional force buildup that Truman had started under NSC 68. Um, he, he had to constantly, he looked for a way to balance the domestic political and economic interests with the foreign policy threat. That doesn't mean he saw the foreign policy threat as any less severe. He just meant that he knew he had to find a way to actually deliver it in a tactically um, pragmatic way. If he spends on Oswan, that means he cannot spend on something else. And the something else is probably more valuable in Europe or Japan or Korea or elsewhere. Uh, so I have to take a chance, was his reasoning on on Oswan. Yes, it's a contradiction, but I think it's an understandable one. Sure. contradiction also evident in the MNM coup. Before the MNM coup, Dalton Eisenhower is telling Congress in the world that if we allow the French to lose there, there's going to be a communist side throughout South and Asia all the way to the Middle East. And as soon as they realize they don't have Allied support, they stop saying that. They do nothing for the French in the MNM coup. They allow it to fall, and they go on to the next issue. That's why I'm like, struck with the with the level of, uh, I don't call it contradiction, I'm calling it a lie. I mean, this is this out and out prevarication in order to justify getting support for a policy, which I would hope that your research would show what are the true reasons for trying to achieve these objectives. Because you, you should time and time again that the rhetoric doesn't match up from one event to the next. Well, yeah, your point's well taken. I don't, I don't know how to respond. Obviously, the evidence allows for more than one interpretation. We have time for one more. Time's up. Thank you.
Does uh, does this display also talk to?